welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Here we are again, and we're going to talk some more about Murder, Inc. Before we get in too far, let's recapitulate a little bit about what we've talked about previously with Murder, Inc. It all starts off with this Bugs and Meyer gang, Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky. And then we fold in some more characters, Joe Adonis. All of this in this stew of these immigrant neighborhoods of Brownsville and the Lower East Side of Manhattan and its conditions that really made America and what maybe made America great of the immigrants and working hard and working hard to make a better life. But it also created some of the conditions for the very worst crime that America has ever seen so as we're moving forward, keep all of that in mind as we learn new players and we learn about new people who are new people who are getting involved in new events in this whole idea of Murder, Inc., that it's all happening in this really fascinating Petri dish of American history. Now, Chris, get us started today with Lepke Buckhalter and Jacob Shapiro. How do they fit into this next part of the story of Murder, Inc.? Yeah, the way we kind of planned it out was like the next two episodes are just going to introduce like all the major players in Murder, Inc. Like I think the previous episode I pointed out, like when we came up with the idea, I didn't, you know, I thought going into it, you know, this would be kind of relatively easy to do. And then once you start doing the research, it's it's really kind of complicated there's a lot of moving parts so uh we've kind of broken it up so i i believe it's going to be pretty easy to follow for anyone really like you won't have to have any background really in on the subject matter to walk away from and yeah i understand what murder inc is it's a lot of people too and it's I know that I don't like getting bombarded with a lot of people and biographies, but it really is important for this story to see how all of these different characters fit together. So definitely hang in there with us as we introduce new characters. Some characters will exit the stage. Some will fly off of the stage, as you'll see. Let's start off with Lepke and Jacob Shapiro and how they fit into this whole criminal underworld that we're we're slowly setting up here 
Kaminsky and uh, Jacob Shapiro were both uh, Jewish immigrants, like uh, from poor Jewish immigrant families, which, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Jews were coming to the United States at this time. And uh, predominantly, most of them were born in in Lepke's case. He was born in the uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan in the year 1897. From my research, Lepke was kind of a play on words. His mother used to call him Little Lewis. Lepke's father was, you know, a hardworking, like, newly arrived immigrant into uh, the United States. He ran a hardware store and, uh, you know, in, in some ways was kind of a modern American success story, right? You know, you, you come here, you open up a hardware store, and, you know, America's given you this opportunity that uh, he wouldn't have had in... Uh, the Pale Settlement, right, where uh, his family came from. Unfortunately, in 1909, Lepke's uh, father passed away. But from what I've read, uh, by all accounts, Lepke was a pretty like successful student growing up. You know, he had he was on he had honor rolls. He was uh, uh, remarkably intelligent. You know, especially coming from such a poor neighborhood and rough background. Um, this is one thing I thought was a little weird, though. I guess maybe it was a little co- more common back then. Like, um, like his mother decided to just move to Arizona. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Roy DeMeo, where um, his mother just picked up and left and just kind of <laughs> kind of left him there. Uh, uh, from what I read, she went there for um, health reasons. I guess the drier air would help with her. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm trying to Doc Holiday. Didn't he move like oh, out to the desert? Or yeah, and, and. I assume she was probably suffering from something like that. And uh, uh, the drier air apparently is better for um, people suffering from, like, I guess, chest ailments or lung ailments uh, than like the stuffy air that of living in a big city like New York. Yeah, she would move there, and then like I don't know. Basically, Lepke was kind of left in charge of his younger sister and. Obviously, it was too much for him, right? He was, you know, by all accounts, was virtually an orphan at a very young age. Yeah, I think that that's so interesting that how different it was back then where his father probably wasn't that old, up and died. Mother cuts out to go live in Arizona. You could see and leaves Lepke alone with his sister. You could see how somebody could break bad, so to speak, in that situation where you got to make money. I'm sure his mother didn't set him up with a huge nest egg. Like you said, his father was a first immigration, first generation immigrant just trying to scrape by. It, th- those are those were very hard times that really people who are not that distantly related to us lived through. I, it's almost unimaginable to us today that our our relatives would have lived like that not that long ago. Yeah, and stuff like that was like fairly common. I mean, it's a slightly different example, but I mean, over in England, like you know, you would send your kids to like boarding school and wouldn't see them for months at a time. And I don't know, like, apparently this was just like normal. Like, I mean, I don't even like going a few days without seeing my kid. I couldn't imagine just being like, all right, little Lewis, you know, I'm moving to Arizona. And back then it was like moving to Arizona was like practically like moving into a different country, right? The infrastructure just wasn't there, right? Like they had trains and stuff like that, but, you know, they weren't the most efficient and they were expensive and slow. 
Well, yeah, that, I mean, it would have taken her probably a couple of weeks to get out there to actually get settled and the communications would have been virtually nil. Let's get into a little bit more of Lepke's criminal background. Yeah, so in 1915, uh, Lepke would be charged with his, uh, he would be charged with his first crimes, like so pretty early on, like, you know, teenage years, he's already already getting involved in crime uh those charges would end up getting dropped uh could be like a reoccurring thing with lepke he you know he gets lucky uh a fair amount of times um and yeah like he would end up doing like a bunch of stints in prison like kind of shortish ish stints you know for petty crimes you know bnes uh you know uh I don't know, like like low tier, like racketeering and like being a muscle man. Um, in 1920, though, like the longest sentence uh, that he got, yeah, he was there for 30 months, right? Which is kind of no joke, especially back then. You people think prisons are rough now. Can you imagine what prisons were like back then, man? Like breeding ground for you know, like creating like you know, just really tough characters, right? Um. You know, it's just a different world back then. And uh, but you pointed out it really wasn't that long ago in terms of like American history or even just human history. It's you know just a blimp on the radar, really. Um, yeah, and uh, Lepke was gonna like he was described as like a quiet man too, right? So Lepke would be he would rather listen than talk. Like he didn't talk. He didn't get very excited. Uh, people talk about like very rarely did they ever see Lepke. Uh, kind of lose his temper um i thought this was kind of interesting too that like he ended up marrying this woman betty uh wasserman who was uh she was a widow from russia and uh he would end up like adopting her her kid later on um as his own kid and that would be the only kid he would ever have in his life what do you think of somebody like lepke who his father's square, he's trying to do his best. His family, you know, from everything we know, has became very highly successful. But this one guy becomes a a really hardened criminal. What do you think about that? I think it can, I think it comes down to like I was thinking about this this week, right? Because like his like I believe his sisters and his brothers, they all became like doctors or lawyers or druggists at the time. That's what they called them was druggists, but it's a pharmacist is what we would call him now. Um, druggist just sounds like he's like a drug dealer, I guess. But I mean, sometimes you know you read about some of this stuff, and it's like oh, I don't know. Is there much yeah, of a the difference? <laughs> you know, yeah. But I honestly, I think it comes down to like kind of like people you idolize i think i think there's like a genetic trait to criminal criminality too i mean that's when you start getting into like you know kind of iffy territory like is like criminality like a genetic problem can we take care of this type thing but i do think that there's some people that are predisposed to this type of behavior uh given say living in a place like brownsville they're you know what i mean like they're gonna jump at it Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. Let's set up the next player, Jacob Shapiro. Uh, Somebody he's born, again, he is a immigrant from the Russian Empire at modern day Belarus, but he grows up in a uh, very, in a similar uh, kind of way as Lepke in that similar neighborhood, similar 
idea, you might say. Yeah, um, Jacob would I would say probably. Whereas like Lepke kind of I would you you could argue Lepke chose to become a criminal in in some ways. Like I think Jacob Shapiro didn't really have uh, really much of a choice. Like he was an orphan at a very young age. Uh, he grew up in a Catholic protectory in New York, which probably wasn't easy for him being being a Jew and living in basically a Catholic orphanage. Uh, I mean, like, it wasn't just for Catholics; they would take anybody, right? But that probably wasn't easy for a Jewish. Uh, for a young Jewish man. Um, yeah, and early in his life, you know, like I pointed out earlier, they would run into uh, Lepke. And um, it's interesting, like apparently uh, this is how they ran into each other. They were both trying to rob like the same place. And but instead of like fighting with each other, I'm like, no, this is my money. This is my money. They just decided that they were going to split the money together. And that's kind of how their friendship started. Uh, it's interesting, like Lepke's uh, and Jacob Shapiro's uh, uh, relationship kind of mirrors a little bit Meyer Lansky's and Bugsy Siegel's relationship. Or uh, Lepke was more kind of like the Meyer Lansky of their relationship, and Jacob Shapiro was more—he was the, more of the muscle. He was the Bugsy Siegel uh, uh, aspect of their partnership. That's something I noticed when I was doing my research. Um, yeah, and then this kind of leads us to um, Shapiro and Lepke would get involved in, you know, we're going to get into it in just a second, something that's called the Labor Sluggers War, which is, uh, in doing my research, I'd never even heard about this, uh, these conflicts that went on. But it, I'm not surprised. I just really haven't heard too much about it. And uh, yeah, I had Jacob Shapiro had like a funny nickname. It's, I guess one of the more interesting nicknames in the mob is Garah. And apparently, like in Yiddish, like get out of here. But he would like say in such like such a thick Yiddish accent that when he would, I guess, scream at people to get out of here, it would kind of come out as like, Grah! yeah. I think that this labor slugger war is really interesting aspect to get into because I mean, anybody who's somewhat familiar with history knows that there was a lot of management labor conflict, workers versus bosses and that sort of thing it's interesting to see how the mafia gets flipped on its head in this episode they're helping the the management and the companies and then it almost flips on a dime that they then take over the union racket so i'm really interested to see how that plays out yeah, like you pointed out, like with industrialization in the United States, and it was like when industrialization happened in the States, it happened quick, right? So it was like, I wouldn't say like it was overnight, but in a lot of ways, it was, oh, we have this new tool, we have to do it as quickly as we possibly can, right? And this like, this inevitably led to like conflicts between workers and factory owners, right? I mean, the, I don't know, like the left, I, I don't I guess the left wing view of this conflict, like it's very easy to, I don't know, demonize one side and like patronize the other side. I mean, it's complicated, right? Like a lot of these guys that were setting up these factories were in a lot of cases were putting up like huge sums of their own money. Right. And they needed, they needed to see like a significant, like they weren't doing this stuff to like just get by. Right. Like they wanted to do well. Um, so like it was but at the same time in terms of doing that you're inevitably going to have conflicts with the with the workers really i mean a lot of these guys like we pointed out earlier a lot of the people that were working in these factories were like newly arrived jewish immigrants uh that 
went from like say working in the fields in Poland to all of a sudden they're getting cramped in like an industrial workspace and it's a totally alienizing i mean karl marx ca- talked about this and i mean that's i don't agree with karl marx and on a lot of things but i think i would say this is one thing he did really capture that was kind of correct like factory work in a lot of ways is is dehumanizing and especially if you're say like a farmer or peasant coming from the field it's it's you know it's alienating it's dehumanizing it's uh it's totally different so let's talk about how did these unions and corporations and well how these unions and companies got were in conflict with each other and then how and why would they use this, this tough muscle against each other yeah well so like the like the workers would argue like they had certain rights and I mean, rightfully so, they did. Like, they wanted, say, a certain amount of hours worked, certain safety concerns, and then the factory owners would be like, well, that's cutting into my profits, and if I have to put this, this, and this, it's going to cut even more into the profits, going to raise costs for everything. And then the workers would be like, well, we're going on strike, and then the factory owners are like, okay, fine, you guys go on strike, we're going to hire scab workers were cheap right and then these workers would be like hell no you're not and (laughs) you know they needed muscle to you know beat up these scab workers or sometimes the factory owners needed muscle to get their you know their own workers to go back to work um and stop being on strike so it's only kind of natural that you know people who specialize in violence such as gangsters saw an opportunity here and thought man, there's a lot of money to be made here and we don't necessarily have to work for one side or the other. And it it really is interesting that they they could play both sides of the field and just make so much money off of it and not really have any care in the world who they were supporting. Yeah, that's it, right? Like, because the only thing that they were supporting was the dollar really right like you know who's gonna pay me more money all right i'll be your muscle i mean when we get into jimmy hoffa you know this is kind of like the origins of like gangsterism and and unions and factory owners this is kind of where it starts but when we get into like jimmy hoffa like way down the road i'm not not sure when we're gonna do that but that's gonna be a huge thing like you know initially like when jimmy hoffa was starting out like he was just following a practice that had always gone on for forever i mean a lot of people have like these like romantic notions of revolution and like oh if we just follow the right doctrine and we do this and that like you know everything will kind of fit into place but yeah i mean in reality it's you need characters like these gangsters to actually get any to get certain things done really i mean what was Stalin, really? I mean, Stalin was a revolutionary, but in a lot of ways, he was kind of like a gangster. He was like robbing banks and, I mean, he was going to the revolutionary cause. But, I mean, I've also, I've often wondered, I mean, what type of mob boss Stalin would have been? <laughs> you know, because in a lot of ways, he was a gangster. So let's set up this first uh, labor slugger war uh, from 1913 to 1917. Yeah, we're not going to get into like super like tons of detail about like a lot of these ones. But uh, yeah, so there was a guy named like Joe Greaser Rosenzweig and Dopey Benny Fien. They both like they both like led like different gangs and like they would fight amongst each other. But uh, but they would uh, end up like uniting and like forming like a like a strong alliance that 
basically kind of dominated like the unions, like the way that we were just explaining how this process uh, kind of happened, right? And uh, basically like created like a powerful racketeering uh, operation, right? Because that's kind of how it all worked was like, in a lot of ways, like these gangsters could control, you know, whether these factories are running or whether they're not running, right? Because they're the ones that had all the muscle, really. In in a lot of ways, they were like the most important players. Um, so like the you know the factory owners kind of had to like pay them respect, but also the unions kind of had to pay them respect, right? It's the it's the really the perfect it's the perfect racket. Not to not to sound cheesy, but it's the truth. Um. Yeah, but these two guys together, they were just so powerful. Like the various other gangs, like even um, even even if they were like united, really couldn't take them all on. Uh, couldn't take them on. That's how powerful these guys were in New York at the time. Um, yeah, and then 1913, there was like a massive gunfight on the streets. No one was uh, no one was actually killed at this, but it like you know it just. It's stuff like that. Like, you're having, like, an open gunfight in the middle of the day on the streets, you know, like, <laughs> multiple people just shooting bullets, like, randomly. Uh, the authorities actually have to step in and start doing something about that. Joey the Greaser, one of his hitmen, would end up getting charged with murder and the murder of, like, one of these opposing gangs. And he would end up, like, testifying. And then Dopey Benny Fien would end up, uh, but also end up finding himself on murder charges himself. That basically ends kind of like the first labor slugger wars. Both these guys end up just going to jail. And don't worry, there will be another labor slugger war. The second labor slugger war of eighteen or nineteen eighteen to nineteen nineteen. What uh, what was the continuation of this conflict? Yeah, with Joey Greaser going to jail and Benny Fien going to jail, uh, there's an, a guy that came up, a uh, kid dropper, Nathan Kaplan, and uh, Johnny Spanish. I tried looking up. I don't think that was his actual name. I think that was just kind of a nickname. They were like rivals with each other, right? These are so like, you know, with uh, Benny going to jail and Joe the Greaser going to jail, these were the gangs that were vying to try to get in charge of this like really powerful racket um they decided like like instead of fighting with each other let's join forces we we have the two most powerful gangs then we'll run it together right um but as you could point as uh, you can see with the fact that it only lasted a year this alliance didn't really last very long. I think it was about like eight months, nine months from when I read this is how long this alliance lasted. And uh, Johnny, uh, like Spanish, would end up leaving the gang and they would, you know, uh, Kaplan and him would end up fighting and uh, Johnny Spanish would uh, end up getting killed probably by Kaplan, but we're not 100% sure. And that leads us to the third labor slugger war which brings us uh closer to where jacob shapiro and uh, lepi bulkalter start getting into the picture it really is fascinating that even though this is we're getting we're in the time of the world war one we can see it's before prohibition but the the writing is on the wall with prohibition at this point that it's coming down the pipe but the mafias 
and the organized crime, the real hooks are into this labor racketeering and labor muscle, even at this very, very early point in mafia history. Yeah, well, I mean, like we pointed out, it it really is. It's brilliant in a lot of ways, like because it doesn't matter which direction you go into, you can make money. You know, and like, and you're also extremely powerful because, in, in a lot of ways, you're running like a huge, important aspect of the economy. And it's it's something that kind of goes. It's not something that kind of like grabs the headlines in a lot of ways, right? Where, say, like drug dealing or even prohibition. You know, like this person's like sneaking booze, or this person's uh, I don't know, say like dealing heroin. Like that that grabs headlines. That brings attention. In a lot of ways, like this type of stuff can kind of go unnoticed uh, or unreported in a lot of ways because it's it's very complicated. You know, like I've left a lot out of it just because it's it is so complicated. There's so many different players. Even me, like kind of researching it, uh, you know, years ahead of time when people have had all like the, uh, you know all the resources available to them to research something that, you know, kind of happened like a hundred years ago. Um, it's still, it's still difficult to really understand exactly how it all worked out. Imagine living it at the time. It would have been very difficult to uncover all this, you know, um, investigative journalism is well, like one reason we don't see it a ton anymore or not like we used to. It's, it's very expensive to do. <laughs> and it's also very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it brings us to the third labor slugger war, which starts in um, 1923. So Kaplan kind of ran labor racketeering unopposed for four years after he killed Johnny Spanish, really. Um, and but by the, like the around the 1920s, he started facing competition, and this is where, like I pointed out, Jacob uh, Shapiro and Lepi Bocalter, uh start entering the picture again right so like when we introduce them we kind of just introduce like their early life and then this is really where they start becoming powerful together um and this brings us to this one character uh jacob origin he had a little he had a nickname little augie i'm just gonna call him little augie uh from this point on uh little augie grew up and grew up around like labor slugging is his entire life he worked under benny finn which is the guy that we had introduced in the first labor slugger war and kind of learned the ropes and was a rising star within this um you know powerful uh racket that was going on in new york at the time so but like when benny finn was kind of taken out of the picture and johnny spanish was uh taken out of the picture kaplan and you know rightfully so kind of saw um little augie as a somebody to worry about so he was kind of pushed to push to the side for a little bit but he ends up uh he ends up you know coming back relatively quickly he ends up forming his own gang well like an alliance of gangs and you know it includes people like lepke Bulkalter, jacob shapiro and another guy that i think we'll end up doing like kind of a short episode on this guy named jack legs diamond i was reading a bit about him he doesn't really i don't know he doesn't really fit in enough to like for murdering per se um so i kind of left him out like doing a little biography on him but he he led a pretty crazy life like i think he, i think people tried to kill him like six times before they actually got it done <laughs> one of the times we'll get into in a little bit here yeah and then 1923 like a full-on war broke out between um kaplan and uh little Augie's new gang um 
um, one night uh, there was a fight on Essex Street and led to like the death of like two innocent bystanders. So, like I was saying, like in a lot of ways, these guys were just you know having 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 open gunfights in the middle of the street in broad daylight. It's just it's really crazy to it's really crazy to think about. I mean, it's we see it sometimes. We see it now sometimes with like drive bys and. You know, like, uh, those are usually kind of like stupid low end gangs, like the ones that actually uh, are kind of smart and trying to run it a bit like a business. They kind of discourage that type of behavior because it brings a lot of heat. But that's one thing I've noticed, like reading um, this uh, early history of the mob where in doing our research, we were kind of used to like reading about, uh, you know, like the five families and like later on and there was like. You know, like, don't let the violence go on the streets. Don't call attention to the authorities. Where, like, uh, these early gangsters, they just don't seem to care. They just just do it, you know? Like, just have shootouts on the streets, innocent bystanders, uh, whatever. It just happens. It's collateral damage. They just don't really seem to care as much. Um, maybe that was... I think that maybe that has something to do with the fact that the authorities just didn't have the type of resources, the power that they have nowadays. But it is interesting that there was less... I don't know. There was less hesitation to do stuff like that. I don't know. Did you find that interesting? Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. Yeah, I found that so interesting. At the, just across that whole time period, there just seem, I mean, as much as they want to say how violent of a society we have today, I mean, there was literal gunfights in the streets with people with machine guns, fire, you know, like uh, Mogadishu style firefights all the time. And I think maybe, I mean, this is wild speculation, but maybe one of the reasons that the commission came around and toned down the violence at least or at least kept it inside of the the family so to speak is that people were getting sick of this and that's where the fbi started to come in and they were the government started policing more and the organized crime knew they had to tamp it down i mean this is the a little later, Bonnie and Clyde shooting up, you know, just shooting up towns and getting gunning cops down in the in the middle of the street. That stuff was starting to wear a little thin by the late 20s, getting into the 30s. Yeah, I just don't think yeah, that's what I think. I just don't think the the authorities really had the resources to do much about it. We talk about like neighborhoods now where. You know, cops go in and nobody talks. I can only imagine. Can you imagine going into a place like Brownsville and be like, "Did you see anything?" Oh, I didn't see anything. I like, could probably was a hundred times worse. Uh, and they just did like they just didn't have the technology. Really, you think about it, right? Like cars are still kind of a relatively newish thing, and the radio. Like the radio, uh, I mean, the government wasn't bringing in the type of revenue that it brings in now. You know. There was still kind of a belief of like as low taxes as possible. I know like income tax and stuff was starting to came about. Uh, what year was it? It was like in World War One. It was a War yeah. Measures Act, was it not? But still, the government, like the federal government itself, and even the local governments, were much smaller. Like they didn't have the type of resources and revenue that they have now to be able to take care of some of these problems. Now you can argue whether that was good or bad. That's neither here nor there. But it, I think. 
the reality was they just didn't have the resources to be able to take care of these gangsters and, and the gangsters knew it too so i think it was a very different idea of policing too that the it was very reactive if it didn't spread outside of certain neighborhoods the crime they didn't really care about it and if it did go into the neighborhoods they cared about then they were going to come down on it full force with clubs and shooting and disappearing people it was not the idea that we have of proactive policing and that the police are going to be pulling people over and all of those sorts of things that we probably take for granted and that maybe has become too excessive in a lot of cases in policing today but i mean as but as much as we uh t- talk about reactive policing today the police were almost 100% reactive back then yeah there was no there was really no proactive policing back then you know <laughs> really not at all it'd be like oh this happened okay we got to do something about it yeah let's go crack some heads let's throw some people in jail let's throw some people into the river and then move on from there and not Look at and the government besides that, that. I mean, it would have been unthinkable in any aspect of, you know, that's maybe starting to look into root causes of crime is happening at this time. But it's very much in its infancy. Little Augie ended up hiring a man by the name of Lewis uh, Cohen. Yeah, and he killed a- Kaplan on uh, August uh, 28, 1923. And with the death of Kaplan, little Augie had virtual control of the uh, labor, labor slugging operation that was going on in New York. And then that leads into our fourth and final labor slugger conflict, which will really bring us full circle back to where we're going with this whole idea of Murder, Inc. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the fourth war is uh, basically Lepke and Jacob Shapiro uh don't like what little Augie is uh, doing and not just little, not just them, but uh, you know, Arnold Rothstein um, and Meyer Lansky in a lot of ways were trying to convince uh, little Augie that, you know, typical labor slugging activity, which is, you know, just go and beat up heads and do this and do that. They were trying to convince them that uh, like, this is, this isn't going to last very much longer. And, the authorities really aren't going to put up with it anymore. What you really should be trying to do is like really infiltrate the unions, like start becoming like put people in charge of like local chapters, you know, maybe yourself end up becoming the head of the union, you know, little Augie. And I mean, in his defense, he grew up around traditional labor slogging. He's like, well, this is what I've done my whole life. Why am I going to change how I'm doing this now? Um, and kind of refused to, uh, change and Meyer Lansky uh, and Arnold Rothstein gave the backing to uh, Lepke and Jacob Shapiro to you know make a move on little Augie get him out of the picture because Jacob and Lepke kind of saw what saw the future too and they saw what Meyer Lansky and uh, and Arnold Rothstein saw what was the future of uh, labor racketeering in the United States and in New York in particular. It really is. It's the meeting of the brains and the brawn of 
the labor con- controlling the labor unions it started off as just bashing heads and then you start the you get new people thinking maybe we can do this in a slightly different way and control it even more you really see the evolution yeah and then so in october 1927 uh jacob shapiro and lepke killed little augie uh they would end up getting charged with this murder and it was dropped because there there wasn't enough collaborating evidence. Um, and they ended up wounding his uh, bodyguard, at the, which was the guy that I had introduced a little bit, Jack Diamond. I already mentioned, we'll probably do a little short episode on him just because he it really is a crazy story with that guy. Uh, he, was a, he was an Irish guy, actually, just, you know, as a little side note. Uh, yeah, with little Augie out of the picture, um, Lepke and Shapiro were left in charge of labor racketeering in New York and Lucky would run labor racketeering in New York from this point on until his death. He would, I believe ended up becoming one of the most powerful labor racketeers that the United States has ever seen. And then you see how it moves on from there where this money and this racket just keeps moving forward and forward and forward into the forties and the 50s and the 60s and a whole empire is built up out of this one activity that we see start all the way back in the 19 teens that arguably in a lot of ways is still with us today this oh, yeah, very like, day oh yeah for sure like it's not as like as like it's not like jimmy hoffa's time or this time period that we're talking about like the mob's still all involved in construction you know like they're still all involved in the unions they're not as much as they used to be but they're they're still they're still involved you know um i don't think that will ever stop because this just seems to kind of go hand in hand you know like the bosses could use somebody from the mafia the unions could use people from the mafia too they're helpful people when you need certain things done you know it sounds cliche but it's the truth yeah and it all exists in this gray area that's semi-legal semi-illegal it's really hard for authorities to bust it up i mean if the if it was easy it would have been done decades ago nearly a century ago and we still hear about labor unions that have mafia connections and even for the people involved and sometimes it's a gray area like a i had read i read frank sheeran's book which was the which was the to paint uh, to paint houses, which is what the Irishman was based on the recent movie. At least I guess it's a couple of years old now. But uh, you know he he thought like the like his greatest achievement in life was like becoming like a, a leader of like a local chapter because um, he kind of believed in what he was doing. Which as bizarre as it sounds, like even for some of the guys involved, it was a little like. You know, like, am I a union guy or am like, I'm, I'm a mobster, too? And, you know, some guys just kind of they didn't care about any of that. But there's examples of guys that and at least they thought they were doing the right thing. Where does this lead us into into the full story of Murder, Inc., this murderous organization that lasts such a long time in the formative years of the mafia? Well, by introducing, like, Jacob Shapiro and Lepke were kind of their own pair together, right? And when we, when Murder Inc. forms, they were, you know, two of the most powerful guys uh, 
in within Murder Inc. right along with Albert Anastasia. Um, and then then the next episode we're going to talk about is kind of this other faction that forms together with the likes of say Abrellis and Harry Strauss and Happy My Own and Frank Abadano and this kind of whole conflict with the Shapiro brothers but in a lot of ways they're two separate things right like Lepke and Jacob like they're doing their own thing over here and Abrellis and what we're going to get into the next episode is like another thing over here and then they kind of merge together that's that was my idea of splitting the two episodes up and splitting these kind of mini biographies up of the two because if you try to do it all together it's too many names it gets confusing so we have this uh the the idea of this labor racket and then the the national syndicate and all of these pieces are going to all come together to make this new organization that we are we know when as the mafia so i know i'm excited to talk more about it i'm sure chris is more excited what do you maybe just to give a little teaser what do you think is the the next piece that's really gonna get people thinking more about this organization murder inc i think the guy that we're gonna end up talking about a bit is harry strauss uh strauss uh uh, I, I'm sure everyone's a little, they're a little bit more familiar with the, uh, the Iceman, Richard Kuglinski. And I'm researching Harry, I, uh, or Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Phil, which is a weird nickname. Nobody really seems to understand. He'd never been to Pittsburgh. Nobody really seems to understand why he has that <laughs> nickname. But, uh, we're like Richard, it's kind of, we're not exactly sure what he's, what he's telling the truth or is it, is he just lying the total, he's definitely lying about some of it, uh, some of the stuff that he talks about. With Strauss, it's, he's the real deal. And I was thinking about this kind of when we were reading it. I'm like, well, if Richard made it all up, I mean, I think he kind of used Strauss as a template just to give you a little teaser about, uh, what we're about to get into. With that, definitely check us, check out the next episode where we continue the, our tale of Murder Inc. If you want to support the show, there's so many ways to support the show, but the best way to support it is by telling a friend about the show. Tell your friends so that they can become friends of ours. Yeah. Forget about it, guys. You've been listening to Organized Crime and Punishment, a history and crime podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media, and how to support the show, go to our website, a to zhistorypage.com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to zhistorypage.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next time on Organized Crime and Punishment. Forget about it. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art 
inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.